Um, in, the, uh, in the modern age, I already sound old, but in the modern age, uh, movie trailers or trailers to films are incredibly big business, aren't they? Movie trailers, trailers to films, big business. Whenever there's a Hollywood blockbuster or maybe a superhero film in the pipeline and the trailer is released, you know that there's going to be a, a mad frenzy about that on social media. So movie trailers are big business. Maybe you think that I'm overstating the case. I am going to prove it by statistics. So here you go. In 2021, a couple of years ago, uh, Spider-Man, a Spider-Man trailer was released. I can't get my head around this, but in the first 24 hours, that trailer was watched 355 million times. In the first 24 hours, 355 million times. What does that tell you? It tells you that people clearly like a trailer, don't they? Uh, people like getting a taste of the storyline that is to come. Well, this morning, what we're going to do at St. Peter's, you and I, we're going to take in a trailer. That's what we're going to do. What do I mean? Well, today, what happens is that you and I enter into a new section of the Gospel of Luke. So from where we are, chapter 4 right through to chapter 9, if you remember that, 4 to 9, we're dealing with uh, Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. Okay, so into a new section. And Luke begins this new section by doing something very clever. And what he does is he, in a way, disrupts the chronology. That's what he, he does. So just as Luke has Jesus begin public ministry in verse 14. What Luke seems to do is he seems to take a later event, an event that happened later. This event that Will's read to you, uh, this event in Nazareth, this later event, and Luke takes that and moves it to the front here of Jesus' public ministry. Why would you do that? Why has he done that? I wonder if you see. He wants this event to be the lens through which you view Jesus' ministry. So this episode that happens in Nazareth that we're focusing on today, in a way, it's a trailer. Do you see? It's a preview of what's going to happen in Jesus' ministry in fullness. So it's an event in Nazareth that is, I suppose you could say, is typical of Jesus' ministry. Or you could even say it's almost like it's Jesus' ministry in microcosm. Does everybody follow? It's a preview. This morning, we get to watch a trailer and a trailer of the full feature of Jesus' ministry. So what should we do? I think we should press play. So would you turn with me to Luke chapter 4? Let's do this. Luke to chapter 4. Luke to Luke, <coughs> as I say every week, chapter 4 from verse 14. Let's, let's notice a few things about this preview or trailer. Number one, I want us to notice here a routine, a routine. That's the first thing we've got to pick out from this text. Okay, so as, as you're looking at this, as we start, I think what we find is actually, I think it's the very first of what are going to be a number of summary sections, like short summary sections that Luke has throughout his gospel. So we've got the first of those here in verse 14. And in particular here in the summary, we're seeing that Jesus is gaining a reputation already. 
He's getting this reputation around Galilee, and it's a reputation as a preacher. Then as we enter the main section, a name jumps out at us, doesn't it? If we can look at that in verse 16, what, what is the geographical reference? What's the town that's mentioned? Do you see it there? So Jesus comes to Nazareth. What does that mean? You know what it means. It means that Jesus has gone home, doesn't it? So Jesus is now where everybody knows his name and where people have grown up with him. Jesus is in Nazareth. Now, I think it is worth knowing that as Jesus goes into the synagogue in Nazareth, you see that this short section here, it really has helped scholars over the years get a handle on what corporate worship looked like uh, at the time of Jesus and how corporate worship was conducted. You see, like before this, we knew lots of different things. So we knew, of course, we knew that the people of Israel, the people of God, they would meet Sabbath by Sabbath to worship God publicly. We, we knew that, right? And we knew that they would sing. So they came in the doors of the synagogue, okay, and they would sing Psalms. We knew that they would pray and so forth. But we're furnished, actually, with a few more additional details here. Stuff like the postures that the people would adopt in worship. And there's a practice in worship that is reinforced for us in this section. And that's the fact that should there be in the synagogue at the time a qualified teacher, what they would get them to do is two things. They would get the qualified teacher to read the scroll and also to preach from God's Word. Kind of, hopefully, a lot of that sounds reasonably familiar to us, I would have thought. So that's fine. That's good. It's corporate worship in the ancient world. Fine. What I would like you to focus on, though, please, is actually Jesus and his own practice. Um, I, I read this this week, and I'm sure we probably agree with it. The, the guy says, uh, if, if there was anyone who had ever lived who might not need to attend corporate worship, it might have been Jesus. Okay, but look at verse 16 again, and actually, what, what's on the screen? I, want you, I really want you to, to rest on it for a second. What does it say about Jesus? As was his custom, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Custom, habit, routine, practice. I, I think everybody in here gets the idea, don't you? Like Sabbath by Sabbath, what did your Lord do? Sabbath by Sabbath, Jesus fixed. He attended corporate worship. I'd love you to think about it like this, that as Jesus honored marriage by conducting his first miracle where? Do you remember? At wedding, the wedding of Canaan. As in doing that, choosing that location, Jesus honors marriage by beginning his public ministry in Galilee here at corporate worship. What is Jesus doing? He is honoring the practice of Sabbath by Sabbath, the people of God gathering together together to worship God. He's honoring it here. He's authenticating it. He's validating the corporate gathering for worship. Let me say something that, that I have no idea how it will land. Um, let me say something that is not meant to be harsh or, or difficult or controversial. That it might be controversial 
is confusing in a way. It might ruffle feathers. Let me say it. Attendance at Sabbath corporate worship, you know, health permitting and so forth. Attendance at Sabbath corporate worship should be, should be just a non-negotiable for the children of God. Like health permitting and, and so forth. You know, and there's, there's, you know, there's circumstances, I get, get it, but we should, we should be at church. And I don't know how that lands. How does it land? Really, for our congregation, we should be, it should be a non-negotiable. It should be in the diary. It should not even need to be in the diary. Does, does it sound, honestly, does it sound legalistic? Does it sound a little bit like legalism or harshness? I mean, if it does, if it does, then we have to understand what legalism is, don't we? Like legalism is you and I trying by our works to earn God's favor upon us in, in salvation. That's legalism. This, is, this idea here that, it's, that worship is a non-negotiable is, is oh, please hear that it is not legalism. It is not like what this is, is, is seeking to delight God, seeking to obey God. And I, I don't want this to come across like it's a hammer. <laughs> I, I want so desperately for all of us, for you and I, to see the joy and delight there should be in, in week by week uh, attending corporate worship to, to worship Jesus Christ. When you see it, so I want to defend this. In a, in a sense of four ways, really, really quickly, okay? Four things quickly. <clears throat> so why should, why should it be a non-negotiable for, for you and for me? Why? Right, ready? Four? One, um, because God has commanded it. I kind of should settle things, I think, shouldn't it? But, but it is true, isn't it? Don't we think? I mean, what do we say to that? God's commanded it. Where would we look? How do we think about it? We would think about the moral law, wouldn't we? And we understand that, don't we? We, we know that, that Jesus has fulfilled the ceremonial law. Hallelujah. The civil law, fine, we don't, okay? The moral law still stands. Okay, Exodus 20, Jesus unpacking it in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, what does God say to us, the church? What does he say? He says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it though holy for rest and, and for worship. Did you see it? And then we think about the New Testament. We think, don't we, about Hebrews 10. And, and what, do we, what does the author of Hebrews say to us? Do not neglect meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So, so we see this. This is, this is set out by God for us. And it's a joy. Because if you're anything like me, and I know you are a Christian friend, we're struggling to obey God. In so many areas of our life, struggling with this. And then what is this? If just Sunday by Sunday we come through the doors and, and we worship Jesus, even in this we can obey, in this we can bring joy to God. One, two, this is our identity. And if I say, what is the church? I think we're good at knowing what the church is not, aren't we? So I say, what's the church? We all say, I am quick to say, the church is not the plaster and the furnishings and, and the roof and the doors, and it's not the building, and we know that. But what is the church? 
What's this word that God has given to us, this word, the church? You know what it means? Who are we? The church is the called out ones, the assembly. The word means that we're called out to assemble together. We're called out by God to assemble together. I mean, isn't that wonderful? Look at the world. Look at how everyone is wrestling with identity. And what can we do in here by just simply coming to worship God? We can do at least something that in Christ we are made to do. We're made for this. Three, this is, it is, New Testament practice. Because you've heard that, haven't you? Okay, we know in the Old Testament in Israel, they had these sort of fixed things that they had to do. But this idea that we have to be at church or come to church, this, you know, that's an Old Testament idea. Well, okay, they, they did worship in the Old Testament. What happens, Christian friend, in the New Testament? I'll think again about the joy of this. What happens is the Sabbath day is moved, isn't it? Now, Why? Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what did the New Testament do? Did they say, because of that, we'll not gather? Or is it not the case that we read on the first day of the week now? Because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we'll we'll come together and we'll meet for worship. And then we read in the New Testament what? So much about what should happen in corporate worship week by week. The New Testament gives over so much material to what we should be doing exactly. And what about the communion and and the preaching and so forth? Don't you see the opportunity? Don't you see the joy? As we come through the doors week by week, you and I get to stand in this long line of the people of God who for centuries have testified to the true and real resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that's three things. And there's, you know, I know, I'm sure there's a million other reasons about this being a foretaste of what will happen in glory and the evangelistic opportunity of of worship and how we can use our gifts to build each other up. We, We know these things. But I said four, didn't I? And I want to take the fourth immediately from the text that we've got here. So as we come to church Sunday by Sunday, what do we get to do? You see in this text that we get to follow in the footsteps of Jesus of Nazareth. That's what we get to do when we gather. We get to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who made it, as you read here, his fixed custom, his pattern, his routine to gather gather on the Sabbath to worship the God. So, 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 yeah, there's a trailer. I think there's a trailer. Isn't there a preview? Like we're going to see in this ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's come to do, he's come to do this on a big scale. He's come to worship his father in the way that we so often fail to do. But there is example, isn't there? And so we should prioritize this corporate worship for the glory of the risen Christ. So we see uh, here in Luke number one, we see a routine. <clears throat> Second of all, we see a revelation. That's what we see, a revelation. Uh, where are we? We are just now in a synagogue 
in Nazareth, aren't we? And Jesus, with his, <coughs> excuse me, with his reputation really growing as a preacher, at this moment, he is handed a scroll, and he is asked to read from this scroll, and Jesus is asked to preach. It's a great moment, isn't it? So what does he do? Well, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. And maybe, did you notice in the reading how deliberate Jesus is at that moment? So we don't know whether he's asked for Isaiah or not, or whether it was just part of the liturgical routine that he gets Isaiah. But he's very, very deliberate about where he goes. He, he, look, he opens the scroll, and he looks for a particular text from where, from where to speak. So I want us to, to put that up on the screen. I want you to look at this. This is on the screen. It's a lovely thought, isn't it? This is Jesus' sermon text for, for that day. This is, this is his sermon text in Nazareth in, in, in this synagogue. Now, it's from Isaiah. Do we know it? Oh, I, think, I think it's familiar to, to so many of you. So most of it is taken from uh, Isaiah chapter 61. We, we know the context, don't we? Isaiah 61. So that's the 8th century BC. And the, the critical thing to notice or to remember is where the people of Israel are. Do you remember? 8th century, they were in captivity, weren't they? So the people of Israel, they were in exile. They're in chains in Babylon. And what Isaiah is doing, he's, he's writing to, to give them some hope, isn't he? I think we've got to understand in the previous chapters, if you know the book of Isaiah, in the previous chapters, what Isaiah has been doing, he has been unveil, gradually unveiling one figure who is going to arise and he is going to act on behalf of the people of God. Isn't that right if you know Isaiah? Like you think about that. What, what has he been, this is chapter 61. What comes before that? Isaiah has been revealing that, that one day a royal figure wait more. One day a, a servant figure, Isaiah. One day a prophetic figure. Even one day a messianic figure is going to arise. Now, the question on our lips is, and what is he going to do? And, and put yourself in the, the shoes of these people in exile. Well, zero in on verse 19, the very last phrase that you've got there. What does, what's the prophecy say? So he will proclaim, and then it says, doesn't it? The year of the Lord's favor. Does everyone in the room know what that is? Do we know that this is a reference to what was called the year of Jubilee? We do, don't we? We've heard, what was that, the year of Jubilee? The Old Testament. It was, a, it was an event, wasn't it? Mandated by God. Get this, I love it. The year of Jubilee was where every 50 years, there would be a, a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Every 50 years, if you had debt, <laughs> it was cancelled. Every 50 years, the lands would, would get rest. Every 50 years, any in slavery, that they would be released, they would be liberated. Do you see what's going on here in Isaiah? To a people who were captive, a people who were in enslaved comes the promise of a Messiah who one day is going to set the people free. He's going to liberate them. Now, this is what I want you to, to do for a moment. I want you to try and picture the scene. 
in that first century synagogue. Can you do that with me? Picture the scene in, in that synagogue. Up until this point, in your mind's eye, recognize that up until now, everyone's been standing in the synagogue. That was the posture for the reading of the scroll. Everyone's standing, but then Jesus stops speaking. And he rolls up the scroll and he passes it to the attendant. Jesus sits down. What, what happens? Did you notice it in the text? There's this massive sense of expectation. Do, do you notice that every eye looks to Jesus and they're all waiting to, to hear what is Jesus going to say. And what does he say? Did you see in verse 21, I think it is, Jesus, it's a summary. But what Jesus says, see that prophecy? Today, that, that prophecy is being fulfilled Do you see, Christian friend, the significance of the words that were coming out of Jesus' mouth at that moment? I mean, yes, Jesus is claiming to be that figure that that Isaiah had spoken about all those years ago. Jesus, yes, he's saying that that's me, I am he. But it's more than that. Because there in that moment, Jesus is claiming to be bringing in the ultimate year of jubilee. So as Jesus begins his ministry here, he is claiming, what a claim, but claiming to be setting in motion that full spiritual liberation and redemption that comes from God for his people. These are amazing things. And it's wonderful. But I, I do feel compelled to ask, this grand picture of Jesus that we have in Luke's gospel, does that match up, friend, to the Jesus that you are focusing on today and thinking about today. Is this your Jesus? Like hopefully you, you, can, you can see what I mean by that. In Scotland today, I, I think uh, that if we were to go out and ask people, do you believe in Jesus? We might be surprised at the answers we get, but I think many people would say, yes. But... Would that Jesus match up with who is portrayed in God's word this morning? You know it, don't you? Many people today would think of Jesus as a good moral example. And many people would think of Jesus as maybe a teacher. Maybe he's a wise teacher. Maybe he's a religious teacher. He's different, if not divine, they might say. But friend, in this trailer of the main feature ahead of Jesus' ministry... What are we being shown about the main character? Listen to me, who, who is Jesus? He really is the true servant king. Jesus Christ really is the, the spirit-anointed Christ. He is the Messiah of God. And what is this about? Why has Jesus come amongst us? Don't you see? He's come to grant sight to the spiritually blind. He has come to bless the spiritually impoverished, Jesus Christ had come and come to set the captives spiritually free. If you have never done this before, do as the crowd did, at least here initially, today, look to Jesus with expectation, anticipation, and put your trust in him. So we see a routine. We also see a revelation from Jesus. The third thing we see is a rebuke. We do a rebuke. So as a church, <clears throat> so doctrinally, if you like, or theologically, as a church, 
we believe in what is called the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture is the idea that we believe that the Bible is clear enough to be understood by all. Okay, we believe that firmly, passionately, we believe that. At the same time, that doesn't stop some portions of the Bible being really difficult to, to understand and requiring of prayer and, and effort and, and time. And I will be uh, frank with you, having studied this for the week, I think when it comes to the response to Jesus' sermon in the synagogue, I think when we come to those, one of those moments that is really quite difficult uh, for us to comprehend and honestly, it could just be me. <laughs> it very much could just be me that struggled with it. But I think how this sermon lands is really quite interesting. I think that the best way of us understanding it is to think of it as a conflict. So and most of you were here last week in the church. Do you remember that we, we, we saw a heavyweight clash last week in Luke's gospel? Do we remember? And remember, we, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't a rumble in the jungle. It was very much a rumble in the wilderness last week, wasn't it? We had Jesus going head to head with the evil one, with the devil, a conflict. Now, that type of thing carries on here. What we've got in front of us is a conflict. So, in the blue corner, who do we have but the crowd? How do they respond to this sermon. Have a look at verse 22. If we can put verse 22 up, I think you're going to see here why it's quite difficult. Because look at verse 22. Initially, things, they seem rosy, don't they? So Jesus preaches, makes these claims, and then we read that they spoke well of him. Do you see what that is? Do you not agree with me that that's a superficial reaction to what's happening here? Like, you see, these people are just impressed with Jesus' oratory, aren't they? Can you think about it for a moment? This is Nazareth. They're like, oh, here, you know, this is the carpenter's son, the carpenter's boy. We've grown up with him, and here he is at the front of the synagogue, and he's teaching like this. You, you see, there's this initial superficial pleasure and delight. Where does it lead, though, this initial impression? Can you look at the end of the verse? I think it's critical for us to understand that what's happening here is that Jesus is giving voice to the murmurings in this congregation. That's what's happening. He's, giving, he's acting in a prophetic way, giving voice to their complaints. And, and right at the heart of it, look at the question. Now they're saying, is this not Joseph's son? Do you see right into the heart of what's going on here? In that sermon, Jesus had made amazing claims about himself, hadn't he? The servant king bringing in the, the year of, the ultimate year of Jubilee. And, and, and how does the crowd, the congregation respond? They're not buying those claims even for a second. This is Joseph's son. We've seen him at work in, in that carpenter's workshop. This is what the servant king from Isaiah, they're not buying it. Do you see what this is? This very much is a response of unbelief. Unbelief. You have the blue corner. What about the red corner? How does Jesus respond, come back to, to all of this unbelief? Um, 
I mentioned right at the outset of the, the service that there's a ladies' Bible study um, this coming week on, on Thursday. And there's going to be a change, apparently, to what the, the Bible study will be doing. This is an opportunity for a shameless plug, I suppose. Um, but the ladies have been working through a New Testament letter, epistle of Colossians, I think it was. And uh, they're changing that. So for the next number of sessions, when the ladies get together, they are... Uh, looking at some really famous Old Testament stories. That's the idea. So stories from the Old Testament that everybody knows well, the really famous Old Testament stories, and be thinking about, well, what is God saying through those? Well, I don't know if these will be covered by the ladies' Bible study. But isn't it the case, and can't you see, that in response to the crowd, Jesus highlights two Old Testament stories that I want to assume you know very well, do you? If you look at the, uh, from verse 25, what's the first story? It's that famous story of Elijah, and he helps the widow of Zarephath. We know that, don't we? First Kings 17, we know that story. What's the second one in verse 27? Do, do you see? Jesus speaks about the story of Elisha healing Naaman the Syrian. Am I right in saying that we know those stories reasonably well? We do but why is Jesus talking to this unbelieving crowd about, about these stories? Like, do, do you see the answer to that question? What Jesus is doing is he's warning that congregation in Nazareth. Warning that what happened to these two stories is going to happen to Nazareth, isn't it? That just as, think about the first story, just as God passed over unbelieving Israel with Elijah. Remember, they rejected Elijah, didn't they? God passed over unbelieving Israel, and God goes to Zarephath, like an unbelieving place, and he demonstrates his power. And then in the second story, justice, where does God go? To whom does God go? Does he go to a Jew to provide cleansing from, from leprosy? No, just as he passes over the unbelieving people of Israel, and he goes to Syrian. Like he goes to, to Naaman to provide cleansing. Don't you, don't you see the implied rebuke and warning for the people? He's saying, so is going to be the fate for Nazareth. Because of your unbelief, Nazareth was in danger of being passed by by the jubilee and salvation of God, passed over by the power of God. Now, yeah, again, look, we, we, we talk about a trailer. Do you not see? I mean, what's the preview here? I mean, is this, does this not happen on a grand scale in Jesus' ministry? Jesus Christ, he came to his own, and what does John tell us? His own whole ministry, his own did not receive him. So absolutely, there is, there is trailer here, but there is a solemn application for us in this room. Really, there is, especially if you're, if you're not a Christian. I'd ask you to, to consider whether there is a parallel in your life and a parallel with the people in Nazareth. Would you think about that if you're not a Christian? Because I think it's, it's true that for some, just like the people that we're reading about, you have been brought up with Jesus. Though you're unbelieving, some of you, isn't that the case? Like the people in Nazareth, you've been brought up in a Christian household, brought up by a Christian granny. Is that right? Christian household. Like these people, you are familiar with Jesus. Isn't that right? Like these people, 
you've heard Jesus' voice in the reading and preaching of the good news time and time again. And yet, for some, despite that familiarity, like these people, you still stand today in unbelief, rejecting Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what I find profoundly sad is that this, I think, is it for Nazareth. Isn't that something? These are his own. And Jesus passes by and he moves on. That is it for Nazareth. And friend, I beseech you not to let that happen to you. Do not let Christ pass you by today. Seize this moment. Look to Jesus of Nazareth. Believe in him and be saved. And then the last thing, the fourth thing, the shortest thing, the briefest thing. Can you, did you get them? Routine, revelation, a rebuke, and then a rejection. <coughs> okay, so here goes. Kate Forbes. Um, regardless of um, our, regardless of our political leanings, right? Regardless of our de- denominational affiliation, I know because you, you, many of you have said it to me that there's a lot in the room who have been shocked by the last week, been shocked um, by the level of hostility that uh, Kate Forbes has faced. Now, what I've heard time and, and again from some of you is. Uh, the idea that this seems out of proportion. That's, I've heard that so often, I can understand it. What, what has Kate Forbes done, really, as she's thrown her hat into the, the ring here? What has she done? But she's expressed, because she has been asked, uh, some straightforward biblical views on, on some moral issues. And then what has been the response to that? And it's been that level, the furore, the level of antagonism towards her that has struck so, so many. Isn't that right? It's the fact it seems so out of proportion. And then you come to Luke chapter 4. And is that not what you see to the nth degree here? Now, I want us to consider verse 28. Have a look, if you would. Now, Hearing these things from Jesus, how did the crowd respond? Read those words. They were filled with wrath. Can you you feel the response from the crowd? They're saying, how dare he? How can Jesus imply that God's power is going to go beyond Israel to, to the Gentiles, to other people? How can he possibly claim that we're not going to be the recipients? And what did they do? In a sense, does it not seem out of proportion? They grab Jesus. They drag Jesus out of this town. They take Jesus to the top of a cliff seeking to throw him down. Now, technically speaking, I think what we're dealing with there is actually a stoning as far as Israel was concerned. There was a lot of different ways that a person could be stoned to death and executed like that. And this was the easier one, practically wasn't it? 
wasn't picking up stones and rocks and hurling, but what did they do? They take a person to the, to the cliff top. They throw him down onto the rocks below, an execution here. That's what they seek to do. Now, we've spoken a lot about the idea of a trailer. Doesn't Luke do here in front of you what no Hollywood blockbuster trailer would ever do? Do you see what he does? So clever. As he brings this story to the front of Jesus' ministry, he gives it to you as the lens through which to view the whole of the ministry. What does, what does Luke do? He points you in this event to what is to come, doesn't he? A trailer, a preview. That though here in Nazareth, the people are going to fail in their attempts to execute our Lord, what will we remember in a few seconds' time? That later on they are going to succeed. That though here in Nazareth, the hour had not yet come, it soon would. And our great, true servant king for us is going to become a suffering servant. Not thrown from a cliff, but nailed to a cross to face, what was that word? Not just the wrath of the crowd, but to face in your stead the wrath of Almighty God, all of your sin. And we have to end with the very last phrase. Look at verse 30. Oh, isn't it amazing? Look at it. But passing through is so brief and mysterious, isn't it? How I've wrestled with this all week. Passing through their midst, he went away. And it's amazing, but we're all scratching our head thinking, but what happened, you know? How did this happen? Was there a miracle here? Well, we don't know, do we? Just somehow, this is what happened. Jesus walked away. He walked away. And, and isn't it marvelous for you, Christian friend, to realize that this too is preview, isn't it? This is preview. That having in his death later on on that cross, dealt with all of your sins, God is, is dealt with having dealt with it, all of your punishment, what would happen? That's right. In that event, Jesus Christ would also walk away that he would walk away from death itself, that Jesus Christ, our Savior, be raised in that tomb, raised to life. Surely, as we just look at this little trailer, this little preview of what lies ahead, surely it's the case that the church of Jesus Christ have all the reason in the world, Sunday by Sunday, to get out of our beds, prioritize this, and come and worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ, what has he done? Who is he first? He is your servant king. What has he done? Though he was rejected by his own, he has worked for you. And in his life and his death and his resurrection, what has he secured for you? He has secured an unending year of jubilee for every one of us who know him in repentance and faith. Oh, we rejoice. The church declares in Christ the captives have been set free. Let's bow our heads.